at my welcome to you all this morning. It's a joy to worship with you, and I want to invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to the Gospel of John. We're going to This morning, we're going to wrap up chapter 11 and move on to the beginning of John chapter 12. Perhaps you remember the uh, the priceless commercials by MasterCard. There there was an advertising campaign that ran for almost 17 years. I think it's done now. But there were just dozens of variations on one theme. So, for example, you um, you have this... uh, Father taking his son to the baseball game, narrator says, two tickets, $46, two hot dogs, two popcorn, two soft drinks, $27, that would have been 17 years ago probably, Um, one autographed baseball, $50, real conversation with 11-year-old son, priceless. And then the punchline. There are some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. Our our text for today could have fit nicely into such a commercial. Dinner with family and friends. Half a denarii. One pound of imported perfume. 300 denarii. All our sins atoned for in the death of Jesus priceless. There are some things even Denari can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. <laughs> let's, uh, let's give our attention to the Gospel of John. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 11, verse 55, and I'm going to make my way all the way through chapter 12, verse 11. And this is God's holy and authoritative word to us. Let's give it our full attention. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples... He who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Pray with me. Once again, O oh Lord, we are um, we're counting on your grace, your desire to make yourself known. We're counting on the work of your spirit to do that which flesh and blood is of no ultimate help. And that is to open the eyes of our hearts so that not just thinking about Jesus, not just dwelling on things that we read about Jesus, but that we would behold with the eyes of our hearts the glory of Jesus. We're counting on you for this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. My aim this morning uh, is to show you that genuine faith, genuine faith in Jesus Christ results in a new and distinct life. I believe that's the point of, of this portion of scripture. Genuine faith in Christ will result in a new, transformed, distinctive life. Genuine faith in Christ and in his sin-atoning death, it, it changes everything. Now, my outline can be broken down essentially under two headings. The first point will be Atonement anticipated. That's, we'll see that in John eleven fifty five through twelve one, and the second point will be atonement appreciated. So atonement anticipated, atonement appreciated. We we just sang of it. Uh, that that song, Jesus, thank you, is such a precious truth of about the atonement. So that's where we want to get going. Let's begin with atonement anticipated. And perhaps since we don't often use that word, what does atonement, what does that mean? And where is atonement in this text, since it's not specifically and explicitly used? Well, atonement is, is the act of making up for an offense 
or an injury. It's the action that makes amends or repairs damage or offers satisfactory compensation for something done wrong. It's a long time ago now, but I remember someone explaining to me that the word Iowa, the word Iowa was an acronym. An acronym for idiots out wandering around. Now that's a joke. It's a joke. I'm still sensitive to it. You'll hear why in a moment. But being a Minnesota, Minnesotan at the time, I thought that was funny. Ha ha ha, idiots out wandering around. <laughs> so not long after learning this acronym, I met someone who introduced themselves as being from Iowa and being the clever and very hilarious person that I am, I, I said, oh, you're one of those idiots out wandering around. Ha, 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 except they didn't laugh. And I could tell, because I'm not just clever and hilarious, I'm, I'm quite perceptive, uh, that on the, because of the look on their face, what I had said had, had offended them. And uh, experienced this experiencing a sudden shift from feeling clever and funny to feeling sick and ashamed. I, I, I mean, I actually did this. I spontaneously dropped to my knees. I folded my hands and I said with desperate sincerity, I am so, so sorry. What do I need to do for you to forgive me? And um, discerning that my contrition was authentic, which it was, um, they accepted my humble apology as atonement for the injury I had caused. My contrition and my apology were satisfying compensation to this offended party for my hurtful action. And until just now, I've never really referred to Iowans as idiots out wandering around ever since. And I, there, that's done. Now, even though the word atonement does not appear in John 11.55 through 12.11, the reality of atonement and the anticipation of atonement is everywhere. Look at John 11.55. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover, to purify themselves. So the Passover, as we know, was a Jewish holiday when unblemished lambs were slaughtered by the people in order to atone for their sins. And in this case, God was the offended one, and the atonement which the Passover sacrifice of a slaughtered lamb offers is, is to compensate for countless daily expressions of willful, active, passive unbelief and disobedience that, that are demeaning, that are dishonoring, that are communicating disregard for and unto an infinite and glorious God. We also know 
that the tradition of slaughtering lambs was really never intended by God to ultimately make fully satisfying amends with God, that these thousands upon thousands, I mean, really upon tens of, no, literally millions of slaughtered lambs over the centuries were only intended to point to one lamb, the Lamb of God, namely our Lord Jesus Christ, whose death and whose death alone was satisfactory compensation for all the sins ever committed by all the people who have ever lived. And so, it's really a, actually a pathetic picture John paints in John eleven fifty five when he says, many, many went up to Jerusalem to purify themselves. Purify themselves. I mean, historians believe that the population of Jerusalem, which in those days was probably about 50,000 people, it would swell during the time of the Passover to over 250,000 people. And the city would be flooded with people seeking, anticipating atonement by themselves for themselves. Self-atonement. You know, it's really something of an oxymoron. There is no sufficient offering, no sufficient sacrifice a finite human being can make to repair the damage done in offending an infinite and eternal God. And yet, perhaps one of the most common garden variety sins people commit each and every day is the tragic offense of seeking to make up for their own sins against God. Ah, if I just, I just obey God, then He'll accept me. If I just serve God, He'll bless me. If I just try harder to please Him, He'll be pleased with me. But when we honestly own up to how far short we fall from treasuring God, honoring God, relying on God, and how powerless, utterly powerless we are to change, and how impossible it is then to atone for and to purify ourselves for our own countless sins, what's the natural thing to do? We hide. We shift from self-purification to shame. If we can't atone for our sins, then we seek to cover our sins. If we cannot remove the stain of our sins, we aim to keep them under wraps. Perhaps you've felt this. Perhaps you've felt the staggering, impossible burden of actually atoning for your own guilt against God. And perhaps you've felt the wearying effect of seeking to then, once you realize you can't do that, control the uncontrollable presence of your sins. There's another example of atonement 
anticipated in John 11, verse 57. It says, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that is Jesus, if anybody knew where Jesus was, they should let them know so that they might arrest him. Now, the, the religious leaders were deeply and irreconcilably offended by Jesus. He, he called them something, he'd made them feel something much worse than feeling like an idiot out wandering around. He had not only challenged their authority and challenged their traditions, but he, being a man, had made himself God in their eyes. And on account of this injury to their perspective, this injury to their position, they demanded atonement. And the only satisfying amends for this offense was Jesus' life. Jesus must die for his sins. We know this is their aim because of John 12, 9 through 11, which says when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. As well as what? As well as who? As well as Jesus. Because on account of him, Lazarus, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. What one commentator says, it is the height of irony that the Jews were concerned to purify themselves prior to Passover at a time when their leaders had indelibly stained themselves as they ruthlessly plotted the death of the blameless Son of God. Now think about this. This notion of making others atone for their offenses against us. It happens all the time. When you've taken something precious away from me, when you've gotten in the way of my purpose, gotten in the way of my plans, taken issue with my perspective, or interrupt my ability to feel good about my person, it triggers something. It triggers the demand for atonement. You will pay. And what will it take to make up for these offenses people commit against us? What's required to atone for such injury? It doesn't it seem, maybe not, but it seems that in today's so-called culture of outrage, you know, people says something and wow, it's just this immediate reaction of outrage. It, it, it just seems that offenses are amplified. Wrath is aroused. That is just so intense, so strong. Nothing will make satisfactory amends. Nothing will atone except 
crush them. Take them out. Do away with them on social media. Put them away. Loved ones, we live in a world that expects and anticipates atonement. So, so where do you locate yourself in this landscape of everyday atonement? Do you, do you bear the burden of making atonement for your own sin, feelings of guilt against God? Do you demand others to make atonement for their sins against you, to, to assuage your bitterness? Are, are you languish, un, languishing under the weight the, the weight of others requiring some atonement for your sin against them. Now perhaps the most remarkable exhibit of atonement woven into the fabric of this narrative is the stunning reality of God himself making atonement for our countless sins against him. John chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Therefore. There's that word, right? Well, what's, what is that therefore, therefore? Well, the chief priests and the Pharisees had taken decisive action to do away with Jesus. They, 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 they understood that the Passover was, was an occasion when Jesus would very likely visit the city. And so they broadcast their intentions to arrest him. All points bulletin was out there. Word was out. And of course, this, this set off all manner of uh, speculation as to whether or not Jesus would actually show up. John eleven fifty five says, Many went up from the country to Jerusalem to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will come, not come to the feast, come to the feast? The grammar suggests that the anticipated answer to those speculative questions is, No, <laughs> he wouldn't dare. He would not dare. I'm betting no, he's not going to show up. And so while the people were anticipating atoning for their own sins against God, and while the religious leaders were anticipating Jesus atoning for his sins against them, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, was anticipating atoning for the sins of his people. Therefore, therefore, because they wanted to take him out. Therefore, he came to Bethany, right where he intended to be. The place he'd raised Lazarus, proclaimed himself to be the resurrection and the life. Therefore, Jesus came to Bethany on the outskirts of Jerusalem, right when he intended to be there, just six days before the Passover. The hour, my friends, the hour which we've seen repeatedly has been not yet. It's not yet that hour. The hour is not yet. It's the hour, that hour of Jesus' sin atoning death. That hour is now approaching. That hour is just one week away. 
And that therefore signals that Jesus knows it and he anticipates it because you see, ultimately, ultimately, it's not the, the chief priests and the Pharisees who are going to kill Jesus. It's not ultimately Pilate or the Roman soldiers who are going to kill Jesus. Ultimately, it is Jesus and the Father who have planned for this hour, for his death, for his sacrifice, which will atone for the sins and give life transforming salvation to all who will believe in him. So you see, atonement is not fundamentally something we do. Atonement is something that Christ gives. It's a gift we receive by believing in Jesus. And what a gift it is. Atonement anticipated. That's the first point. Now here's the second. Atonement appreciated. According to John chapter 12, verses 2 through 8, a dinner was served in honor of Jesus. According to Matthew 26, verse 6, this dinner happened to be at the home of a man known as Simon the leper, who apparently was a leper no more, since if he was still a leper, it would have been illegal for anybody to enter his house and have dinner there. <laughs> Wouldn't you have loved to have heard his story, right? And Martha, the sister of Lazarus, she was the server, the caterer, probably, if you will. And Lazarus, who had been buried but was now alive, he was there. Another one of those people that, man, if I could just have a few minutes off to the side. Oh, man, tell me, what was that like? What did that feel like? Ooh, that would have been awesome to hear. And, of course, Jesus, who was alive but would soon be buried, was the guest of honor. This would have been very much like one of our missional community gatherings. Just normal, everyday rhythms of food and fellowship and stories. It was an opportunity to look back at the profound, powerful evidence of God's active presence, His grace displayed in this mind-blowing miracle. It was an occasion to look up. I mean, let's just talk some more about that miracle, what it means, it's the significance of it. Man, Jesus, you're the resurrection. You are the life. And once we're joined to you, we're united to you by faith, <laughs> everything changes. How can we live in the good of that? What a great conversation. And so, John 12, verses 2 through 8, it's just this wonderful picture of a group of everyday people like, like you and me, and uh, you, just, you just want to enjoy being together with Jesus. That's what's going on. And in this gathering, John shows us, in particular, 
this amazing and transforming effect that the atonement of God in Jesus has on a person's life. You see, something, something as powerful, dynamic as new birth, regeneration, something as powerful as new life, you cannot hide this. You cannot hide this. To have the life of Christ that Christ gives, to be joined to Jesus, to have his life is to be changed. To have the life that Christ gives and remain unchanged, that's impossible. It is impossible. And we see this set out most clearly in this text in the contrast that John makes between Judas Iscariot and Mary. In Judas, we, we've got a man who has who's really spent much of, much of his life over the better part of the last two, two and a half years with Jesus. They've been traveling partners. He, he'd been up close, personal with Jesus. Yet, yet at the same time, for, for all the time spent with Jesus, Judas has not yielded to Jesus. Judas has not submitted to Jesus. Judas has not admitted his need for a Savior to atone for his sins. And therefore, he has not seen, even though he's been looking at him, he has not seen or appreciated Jesus as a sin-atoning Savior. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. Let us note here how far a man may go in Christian profession without any inward grace. There is no evidence that Judas up to this time was unlike the other apostles. Like them, he had seen all Christ's miracles heard Christ's teaching, lived in Christ's company, and had himself preached the kingdom of God. Yet, he was, at bottom, a graceless man. Privileges alone convert nobody. And consequently, what characterizes Judas' life is selfishness. I mean, he is just all about him. What characterizes Judas' life is spiritual blindness. He's right there. He cannot see the glory of Jesus. What characterizes Judas' life is murmuring and discontent. What characterizes Judas' future is eternal separation from God. But then there's Mary, who also had the privilege of getting to know Jesus. And oh, what a difference. What an exhibit of transformation. And Mary's 
act here, I believe is recorded here, um, it exemplifies the, the specific effects of having come to Christ and having acknowledged Christ as Lord and Savior and having received from Christ new life, spiritual life, and the sweet, sweet, unspeakable gift of sins atoned for. And so, what I want to do just with the rest of my time is just take a little closer look at Mary and see, see her, look, look at her. And, and in seeing her, may we also be transformed by the effects of genuine trust, genuine faith, genuine reliance on Christ as one's sin-atoning Savior, and be encouraged to live in the good of that great salvation. There's so much that could be said, so I'm only going to focus on the one thing that... Um, which is most immediately obvious. There are other things. Um, maybe we can look at them at another time in another way. But this act of Mary is an act of humble, unashamed adoration of Jesus. Humble, unashamed adoration of Jesus. It, these people, they're gathered and they are grateful and uh, they're glad. Martha, Martha, she is in her glory. As we say at our house, she's doing what she does. And people are comfortable and they're reclining with their heads in close so that they can talk and they're Bodies are trailing out behind and away. And it's just a picture of close, happy fellowship. And Jesus is in the place of honor. And then, at some point, Mary stands up. She stands up and she moves near to Jesus. Now, this act of a woman unbinding their hair in this cultural context, just letting her hair down in public, that would have just caught the attention of everybody in the room. Texts going off, OMG, OMG, OMG. And uh, moved, though, by deep feelings of appropriate of appreciation and adoration for Jesus, and unafraid, unafraid to express that appreciation before other people. <laughs> Mary takes this bottle she's been carrying. She breaks this delicate little neck, and then beginning with his head, and proceeding all the way down his body, ending at his feet. She anoints Jesus with what John records as very, very expensive ointment, worth a year's salary. And almost immediately, this 
fragrance, this pungent uh, spike nard. It's a very wonderful Indian spice. It just fills the room. And there is no doubt that uh, there was a, a, probably a long, breathless silence as everyone observes this singular act of humble, unashamed adoration and appreciation. And, and I read these verses and um, I just have to ask myself, do I have that? Is there something like that in my heart toward Jesus? Any of us, any of you who have professed faith in Christ, I, I, I think you know what I'm talking about. You understand the temptation that we all faced or the discovery that we make over time that, you know, it's just, we, we've drifted. That, that affection is not as vibrant. That adoration is not as intense. We just, by nature, drift. By nature, the temptation is to coast in relation to our devotion to Jesus. And coasting gets us nothing. Drifting gets us nothing. But think about this and ask yourself, is, is there a humble, unashamed adoration of Jesus in my heart? Personally, personally, do I have that? And is there a humble, unashamed adoration of Jesus in us? corporately, together, as a church? Is there a humble, unashamed adoration of Jesus in our corporate singing and praise? Is there a humble, unashamed adoration of Jesus in our, in our giving? Is there a humble, unashamed adoration of Jesus in our serving? And in our care for one another as missional communities? Is there a humble, unashamed adoration of Jesus in our offering to the men and women, young people, children in our city, repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the good news of Jesus' sin-atoning death for those who trust in Him? Is there manifest, humble, unashamed adoration of Jesus. And if there is not, whether that's personally or whether it's corporately, then how do we, how do we get that affection of humble and unashamed adoration back? Listen to the words... Um, of Thomas Watson, Puritan pastor. His, his writings are classic. He says, the reason our affections grow cold to heavenly things is because we do not warm them at the fire of holy 
meditation. <laughs> Holy meditation. That's a, that's a very Puritan-like phrase. But don't be put off by it. Holy meditation is what you do when you prayerfully meditate on God's word and you let God feed your soul. Holy meditation is seeking communion with and fellowship with Christ in His Word. It's sitting regularly, very Mary-like, at Jesus' feet. Every, every time Mary is referred to in the Gospels, it's always in relationship to Jesus' feet. Jesus' feet is a sweet place to be. And it is especially holy meditation, it's especially reminding ourselves of the gospel. It's reminding ourselves regularly that God has atoned for our countless sins against himself. God has done the atoning. He's the one that has made the offering that is satisfactory, compensating. In the death of His dearly, son, dearly loved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, God is the one who has taken our guilt away. Listen, loved ones, where, where adoration for Christ grows thin, appreciation for Christ's atonement has been neglected. And where adoration for Christ is absent, then the atonement of Christ has been forgotten. I, wanna, I want you to hear a, a quote from an old friend of ours by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Um, this is how we'll end. Spurgeon said, preached, I suppose, are you content to follow Jesus from a distance? Oh, let me affectionately warn you, for it is a grievous thing when we can live contentedly without a present enjoyment of the Savior's nearness. Let us work to feel what an evil thing this is, little love to our Savior, little joy in our precious Jesus. Little fellowship with the beloved. Sorrow over this. But do not stop at sorrow. Remember where you first received salvation. Go at once to the cross. There and there only can you get your spirit aroused. No matter how hard, how insensible we may have become, let us go again in all the rags and poverty of our condition. This will bring us back to our first love. This will restore the simplicity of our faith. This will restore the tenderness of our heart toward Christ. Let us go to the cross. Let us remember 
what has been done for us by Christ. Atonement appreciated. Loved ones, he or she who has been loved much, loves much. He or she who has been forgiven much, humbly and unashamedly adores much. He or she who has received much, gladly appreciates much. And may genuine faith in Christ result in a transformed life for the glory and the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we sang earlier, you have made a way. You've made access by your sin-atoning death. The way is open for us to draw near. We ask once again that you might open the eyes of our hearts to behold you that you might impart new life. Spiritual life that we might move, that we might get up, that we might turn, that we might draw near, that we might trust, that we might take hold of you. Come to your feet. Where there has been life, but it has diminished, declined. We're turning to you, looking to you, Lord Jesus, once again. To renew it, to revive it. To help us even now as we sing it. To be mindful, to remind ourselves of what a great Savior you are and what a great gift you have given in dying in our place. So we, we look to you. Oh, pour yourself out upon us. We ask in your name. Amen.